Life is about, you know, enjoying maybe a glass of wine or breaking bread. And it's this idea that you're not a lesser person for doing so and that you should enjoy this moment. And whatever it is, make sure it's absolutely amazing. Well, hey, everyone, Dr. David Perlmutter here. Welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. Health and happiness go hand in hand. And who couldn't use uh, a little more of both these days? That's for sure. That's a question that's posed on the back of a new book called The Joy of Wellbeing. Uh, terrific book uh, by Colleen and Jason Wackub. And you may know of these individuals because they are the founders of the Mind Body Green uh, website. That's uh, 15 million unique visitors a month, an extremely popular uh, website, clearinghouse for really uh, fundamentally terrific in, uh, information as it relates to health and well being. Uh, they've decided to write a book, and I've just finished reading the book. It is superb. We're going to uh, do the deep dive into that book and meet our authors in just a moment. But let me tell you a little bit more about them. Colleen Wakab is the co founder, as mentioned and co-CEO at MindBodyGreen, the leading independent media brand dedicated to well-being with 15 million monthly unique visitors. She graduated from Stanford University with degrees in international relations in Spanish, and then spent 10 years working at Fortune 500 companies, including Gap, Walmart, and Amazon, before devoting her life's work to MindBodyGreen. She's been a speaker at Fortune 500 companies and numerous trade conferences on well-being trends. And her new passion that brings her joy is one of my favorites, pickleball. Yay. Uh, Jason Wackob is the founder, co-founder, and co-CEO of Mind Body Green, uh, which is described uh, as being the leading independent media brand dedicated, again, to well-being. He's also the host of the popular Mind Body Green podcast, uh, I've been on that uh, several times. Uh, Jason is also the author of the best-selling book, Wealth, that's W-E-L-L-T-H, as in well, How I Learned to Build a Life, Not a Resume. He's been featured in the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Forbes, Fast Company, Business Insider, and Vogue. And he has a BA in history from Columbia University, where he played varsity basketball for four years. And he and his wife, live in Miami with their two daughters, Ellie and Grace. And in his spare time, he loves walking to get black coffee. And I probably know, having grown up there, uh, right where uh, these guys live, uh, where they go for their coffee. So let's just welcome our guests and learn about the new book. Colleen, Jason, welcome to the program. So great to see you. Such an honor to be with you and, and us actually answer the questions this time around. Yeah. Uh, but what, what you're meaning, of course, is I've been in your hot seat for a couple of times and never really was a hot seat, though. I always thought your interviews were very uh, deep. And uh, I'll never forget, uh, I, I was going to ask you this later on in the interview, but the last question of the last interview was, what would I tell myself? Uh, what would I tell my 20-year-old self? And I think you were looking for... Um, some uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of uh, advice. And my answer, I do remember my answer, it was two things. Be careful how much sun you get and floss your teeth more often. And I know I looked at you and I think you, your shoulders came down a little bit because I think you were looking for something a little bit more deep. But, you know, <laughs> it, it's funny because uh, I was thinking about that because my second interview that I'm doing today is um, with a researcher who has connected the health of the of the microbiome in the in the mouth to Alzheimer's risk. So there you go. Wow. So maybe it's important information. You guys have a wonderful book coming up. I'm going to hold it there so it's not blurry. And uh, actually, by the time it's it is out by now, let's just say, because obviously this is recorded. So where do we start? I think I'd like to start. There's some really compelling stories from about each of you, the beginning and about your health challenges and the lives that you were living. And who wants to start? Ladies first, what do you think? Let's do it. All right. Um, so, so my health journey is, is, you know, very much the story of mind, body, green and, and the joy of well-being. Um, I was 
32, working a very fast-paced career, living in New York, doing all the types of things you would think someone in New York in their early 30s would be doing, going to lots of intense yoga classes, cardio, very busy social life. And I had a, a really frightening experience one day after going to another wonderful yoga class at my friend Tara Stiles' yoga studio, where after class, I was walking around as I always did. And I, I called Jason. I was like, I'm having, I'm having trouble breathing. Can you come into the city? So we took the train in. We met in the West Village, walked around for a bit. And I was like, I need to get home. And so we, we took the A train home. Uh, there's a lot of steps on this A train. And as we were walking out of the subway, I, I collapsed. Finally got up, walked out of the subway, and it's like, that was weird. Called my doctor and did what I think a lot of women sometimes do related to health issues. I totally gaslit myself and was like, I'm fine. Totally worked too hard on a hot, you know, New York summer day. I'll be fine. And then that weekend I napped and did lots of things that just aren't really usual for me at that time in life. And on Monday morning, before I went to work, Jason was like, the only way I'm letting you go to work is if you go to the doctor on your way. So went from Brooklyn to Soho on the subway, got to my doctor, you know, did a quick test and was like, you're, you're having a pulmonary embolism. And I was just so bewildered that he didn't think I could make it in a cab to NYU. And he gave me a little sign that said, I'm having a pulmonary embolism. No so way. I you're, you have a sign that says that. So that when I got to the and ER, did people give you money on the street? <laughs> I just hopped in a cab and went. But ironically, Jason actually beat me to, to NYU from Brooklyn. And when I got there, they were like, we've never seen, you know, someone with so many showers in their clot, clots of, in their lungs who's who's still alive. And, you know, that was obviously a, a huge inflection point And one of those moments where you go from breakdown to, you know, a longer journey to eventually get to a breakthrough in terms of health and wellness. But, um, you know, I learned through this process that it was likely the birth control pill that, you know, was the culprit of my clotting. I wrote an article about it in my Muddy Green that went pretty viral. And lots of women wrote in about sisters, friends, cousins who had had similar experiences, even though I don't have very severe clotting risks. So, um, you know, I, I, I look back and I you know, definitely encouraged myself to, to kind of take greater advocacy of, of understanding what I was putting into my body. Um, but it was definitely the start of this well-being journey for me and, um, you know, changed my perspective. I explored so many different elements from like the Western to the more spiritual. And, you know, this is a roadmap that I wished I had when I was in my early thirties so that I could get to the ROI of what's actually going to have the biggest impact, um, sooner rather than later. And I recall that you were writing about how you had some uh, leg swelling and one of your legs was swollen and you wrote it off to a sports related injury. And in retrospect, that might have been the source from whence the the uh, the clot uh, came. And um, you didn't have any risk factors aside from being on birth control. You, they checked you for factor five lied and things like that. And and so I would only imagine that that mind body green post that you did about uh, birth control and having a PE uh, would have been something a lot of people could uh, relate to. Unfortunately, too many people could relate to it because I think, you know, the risk of clotting if is around one in 10,000 if you're on the pill. But, you know, given the amount of women who reached out to me, there was a lot of people who had similar experiences. Mm. And I do think it protected me from, you know, in pregnancy where we have an increased risk of clotting that I was more cautious um, in my pregnancy than I otherwise would have been. But it was definitely, a, you know, a turning point and an inflection point of kind of how I think of my own health and well-being and a realization that I, I needed to uh, become the own, my own CEO of my health and well-being journey. Well, you actually use that term in the book uh, about being the CEO, that, and I think that's one of the chapter headings. But, you know, the feeling that I got when I read your uh, intro part was that you, th you thought you were doing everything right. <clears throat> You're eating the best you could that in ways you thought were, were uh, you know, going to be healthy and uh, going to the yoga classes and doing all the things. But then there was some, uh, there were some issues with the margaritas and being up late and not paying attention <laughs> to the, and I'm, I'm not being drugged. Well, maybe I am, I don't know, but I'm just saying that the, the book really makes it clear that the body does keep the score. I mean, it really does remember. And, you know, we tend to think, well, we can offset, uh, you know, often said you can't offset uh, a crappy diet 
with exercise. I mean, so I think we look upon the various choices we make uh, about offsetting, you know, the times when we don't make good choices. And and on the other hand, I think it's um, very clear that, you know, we can get obsessed with certain things. There's one quote early on I'm just going to read because I thought uh, I really loved it, um, the wording, et cetera. I'm just going to read this. We feel like we're losing the self-care game if we aren't taking a nightly bath with sustainably sourced Epsom salts and keeping up our with our daily gratitude journaling. You can dial in your VO2 max, eliminate gluten, stabilize your blood sugar all you want, but if your relationships are in a shambles and you can't remember the last time you laughed, none of that matters. So, you know, for our, our viewers, that's what this uh, interview is all about. It's about the bigger picture. And about what really matters. So we're gonna we're gonna unpack that now. Uh, Jason, you're on a plane, thousands and ten thousands of miles uh, a year, and trying to sell chocolate chip cookies. I, I recall, uh, and yeah. going which were organic, I guess. And uh, you're a very tall individual. You developed some sciatic issues on the plane, and at one point you barely could walk. So tell us about. Uh, you know, what you went through and then uh, your epiphany. Sure. So I've definitely had, I guess, two evolutions since since the uh, story of founding MindBody Green. And, and unfortunately or fortunately, my lower back pain was the inspiration. And so you know, as you outlined, I, I was running an organic chocolate chip cookie company at the time. We have to go back to 2007, eight. We're in every Whole Foods market in the country. Um, I've been to like 200 Whole Foods. I flew over 100,000 miles domestic. My six foot seven frame in a coach seat is, is not something I'd recommend for me or the person in front of me. And it turned out the, the stress, the flying, an old basketball injury from college led to two extruded discs in my lower back, L4, L5, S1, excruciating sciatica, couldn't walk, went to a doctor. He said, do you need back surgery? Didn't really, didn't really want to just jump into surgery. I have nothing against surgery, but generally see it as a last resort. And the success rates with back surgery aren't that good. Tried cortisol shots. That didn't work. Sought a second opinion. That doctor said the same thing. He said, you need back surgery. And it was almost like an afterthought. He said, you know, maybe some yoga or therapy could help. And so I started with some really light yoga. And over the course of, of six months, I went from couldn't walk to being completely healed. And it was, it was, you know, I did have that epiphany where I said, everyone's got, you know, health and well-being wrong. You got to go back in time that the, the word we use well-being, that's intentional. We'll, we'll come back to that. But wellness was a word that was equated with the spa back then. Anything holistic was, in our view, a little bit too new agey, a little bit out there. And it only preached the choir of people lived in the west side of LA or Brooklyn and Boulder. <laughs> and you know, we thought it was clear that true true wellness was this blend of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being, and that they were all connected. Hence, mind, body, green—one word, not three—and that was that was kind of the story behind mind, body, green. And you know, I'll, I'll fast forward to today and how I've evolved. <laughs> you know, I'm 48 now, and we have two little girls, ages six and and almost four, and men in my family have terrible records with longevity father died of heart disease at 47 maternal grandfather died of heart disease at 49 and paternal grandfather cancer at 44 and i say that stops with me i believe in epigenetics i believe we made advancements uh in terms of technology testing and science around lifestyle modification where I am determined to not only live longer, but have a better quality of life. And a big part of the, the why behind the book and where the why with us right now is we've come so far in this conversation. I go back to when we officially launched Mind Body, Mind Body Green in 09. The conversation you know, started with, we'd say 1.0, which is longevity, which is let's extend life to say 100 years old. <clears throat> and that, that soon went to the 2.0, health span. You know, if you want to live to 100, you don't want the last 30 years to have a lower quality of life where you're not being, you're, you're not mobile, you're not healthy. That's, that's, I think that, I don't think that'd be fun for anyone. So health span would evolve to, you know, let, let's say we lived in 99 years, 11 months, uh, 30 days, and then 
die of a heart attack at night or, or decline rapidly in 24 hours. That, I think that's health span. And then in our view, it's the 3.0 is joy span, joy. You know, what's the point of living to 100 and being healthy and fit and mobile? But if you're on, you know, marriage number six and your kids don't speak to you and you're miserable, that just seems like a terrible existence. And, you know, when you, when you reference that sentence, there, there are all these things, there's all this technology. But the, the big objection to our world still is I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. And this is sucking the joy out of my life. And that's where we think the opportunity lies. And it's the big why behind the book. Well, you uh, mentioned uh, uh, well-being, the, the difference between well-being and wellness as a as a concept and certainly even the title of your book. So how do you differentiate between the two? I think we have a very complicated um, relationship with the word wellness, um, you know, while acknowledging, hey, these practices have helped us both individually tremendously in our own life, the way it's being kind of communicated to the public right now, we don't really relate to. Um, we talk about in this book, the idea of, you know, Kardashian wellness. And we think that's when you overemphasize the things that don't really matter as part of your wellness. And there's nothing wrong with these things, whether it's, you know, the sustainably sourced Epsom salts or, or whatever it may be, that's um, just a little extraneous. And what we want to have the conversation be is more of a focus on the fundamentals. And how do we shift that conversation to be about the fundamentals and something that's bigger than all of us and move the conversation from the self to this idea of something bigger, which is, you know, a really important chapter for both of us in the book, which is, you know, to us, the difference between wellness and well-being. Uh, I'm laughing because there, there are a couple of South Park episodes that come to mind <laughs> that, that really relate to the notion of wellness. And, and I've never heard Kardashian used as a verb before, but I like that. That's because I get it. Um, Colleen, you mentioned uh, being the CEO of our own health. And I've often used the term architect of our health destiny. So what do you, what, do, what does being a CEO of our own health? I mean, it, I thought that was something my doctor took care of. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's the biggest unlock for everyone and probably also the hardest place to get to where you have the confidence to take all these different sets of opinions, all the different information that is served up to us within the world these days. And there's an abundance of information and be able to use this combination of intuition, pattern recognition, knowing your body to be able to understand what is what your body needs right now. And as we go through the different decades of life, that changes and that evolves. And I, the state of being able to listen to your body, to understand and have it be one of the data points that you reference is, is actually a very long journey. When we were talking about myself in my early 30s and, and that lifestyle I was living, you know, I think if I were to look back and what would I do different, it, it would actually have been to cultivate that ability to understand what my body was telling me because you want to be able to listen to the whispers so that you don't have to get to the point where you have this big clamp from the universe um, that forces you to make the change. But it's too often when everything's kind of status quo, you're like, oh, I'm not going to make a change. Um, whereas I think most of us are probably like, living okay. They're not having these traumatic cat near catastrophic events like I did, but that's actually just the right time to start thinking, okay, how could, how could I make my life a little more well-lived? What would bring me a little bit more joy? What is it that brings me joy? And can we really connect to our own, you know, intuition and body to understand what we need now and what we need in the future? I think, to, and you called it out in the book, uh, that it's challenging for people who are getting so many messages via social media about a dietary trend or, or other lifestyle modification they should be making right now. Uh, you know, this cardiologist says if you eat this one vegetable, you're going to lose 10 pounds or take this diabetes drug, for example, and you might lose weight very quickly. So, you know, how do we sift through that, that in you know, all of this messaging that it's keto, it's paleo, it's vegan, it's more plant-based, you know, how do we determine how to, and maybe, you know, I'm not looking for the answer, but just kind of a discussion as to this whole notion that we were being bombarded by information 
that may not be science-based and may not have our interests at heart. You know, I think you're hitting on another big part of the why for us. You know, we are in the the age of information and, and information is empowerment, but too much of it can also be overwhelming and in our world, often conflicting and confusing. And the other layer here are the algorithms. You know, this, this is where most of our creators or educators, this is where they spend their time posting content. And algorithms reward extremes. There was a, you know, speaking to the algorithm, there was a great study we referenced in the book done by uh, Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania, analyzing the most emailed articles of the New York Times, essentially the most vir viral, most widely read articles in the world. And they analyzed these articles by emotion. And the top three were anxiety, awe, and anger. Anger was number one. Anger in increased virality by 34%. So if you just pause and, and say, okay, what does this mean? Essentially, articles that cause someone to be angry were more likely to be shared and read. An article that is more shared and read gets more clicks. It drives more revenue. And so unfortunately, many people are in the business of inciting anger. And as it relates to health and wellness, how do you incite anger? You have extreme points of view that are polarizing. You demonize people or things or food. You try to cancel people, try to call things out, and it is totally unproductive. And it doesn't really lay the groundwork to have an informed, uh, curious, and respectful conversation or debate. And that's the world we live in. And it's really hard to be an I wouldn't say average person, but someone who's even educated looking for answers because there's everyone, there, there are so many conflicting opinions and a lot of them totally unfounded and, and not based in science. And, and to us, that was a frustration point. And with the book, we really tried to cut through the clutter and say, this is what we know to be true. And these are the practices and you can have a job and you can have a family and you can have kids and do all of these things. And you can be less than perfect. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the rub with all, you know, we're referencing the VO2 max and the measuring and the toys and look, I'm wearing a whoop and an aura, but it can become too much. When you hear about someone's routine where they start the morning with meditation and then the sauna and then the cold plunge and then the gym, it's like, okay, it's 11 a.m. I have a job. My kid's screaming. It's a recipe for divorce. I, these points are well taken, and I want uh, our viewers to know that you deeply explore this in the book. And to go back, you know, I really have the feeling, always have, that Mind Body Green uh, doesn't uh, allow conspiracy-based, for example, types of ideology to to make its way to your pages. Everything I've read uh, on your website has really been uh, supported by reasonable scientific research. Is it edgy? Has to be. I mean, wouldn't you wouldn't be as successful as you are if it weren't edgy? You've got to push boundaries, but it's not to the point of being inflammatory towards other things. Like you know, this is what the, your doctor won't tell you. Um, those are pop up ads day in and day out. You know, eat this one food and uh, you're going to lose your belly fat. I mean, it's ridiculous. But so I, I very much enjoyed that. The book, you know, is very much founded on the principles of your website, and I, you know, people need to know that. But let's now unpack some of the specifics. You, you jumped right in early on talking about breathing and people are going to say, oh, now we're going to get to the part where they talk about breathing exercises. No, you talked about some interesting statistics that children, for example, up to 90% of children have now anatomy that has changed their physiology, the way that they breathe, the changes that have occurred in the way their face, their faces are formed. Their facial bones are formed, uh, which is a very recent change, uh, affects their ability to breathe appropriately through their noses. And then you explained why this is an issue. So what's, <laughs> I hate to say this, what's the deal with breathing? But what's going on with breathing? First, we'll start with children, but then we'll talk about adults and snoring and sleep apnea and all those things. 
Yeah. I mean, you hit the the nail on the head that 90% of children have acquired some degree of deformity in their mouths and noses. 45% of adults snore occasionally and quarter of the population snores constantly. And my, my pulmonary embolism was really, to me, the gateway for how I started thinking about my breath. I hadn't thought about breathing until it was something that I was really struggling to do. I was living in with a type of invisible illness and in that I looked fine on the outside, but I would try to beat out senior citizens for the last seat on the subway because I was worried about what would happen to me if I had to stay on the whole subway ride home from Manhattan because of my breathing issues. So it, to me, was this whole unlock of how to really think about breath. And, you know, when we think of what types of changes are going to have long lasting impacts on our health, it's why we started with breath because you breathe 17,000 to 30,000 times per day. And I grew up, you know, thinking I was educated, thinking, you know, to, to our conversation earlier that I was doing all the right things, but I was breathing all wrong and I was breathing through my mouth. And for me to help make this change, the things that really worked was integrating it into my daytime so that it could be applied to my nighttime. And by being a more thoughtful listener during times of conversation, um, really thinking about breathing through my nose, which also then lets the other person finish their sentence, kind of stifles that tendency where you want to jump in. Interesting. (laughs) I'm here panting, waiting to interrupt you. Right? That's what exactly. so I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. And that and, helps lay the foundation for a good night's sleep. And, and there, there's such downstream effects. You think about immune function. You, know, you breathe through your nose. You know, your nose filters out all the bad stuff, whereas mouth breathing, you're a lot more susceptible, susceptible uh, to a virus. Also increases CO2 tolerance. You know, that, that has an impact on your physiological resilience. And there's nitric oxide. There are cardiovascular benefits. And then not to mention the big one, you know, anxiety. You know, you're more likely to be in a fight or flight mode when breathing through your mouth rather than nasal breathing can lead to chronic I, I, the stress. The reason I'm so laughing, you're going like, to hate me for this uh, because I, I, you said not to mention. <laughs> and then you mention it. I do the same thing. Why do we do that? Why do we say not to mention? And then the next words out of your mouth are exactly what you don't mention. Anyway, uh, but that said, uh, you, you brought up the notion of, um, you know, immune function and how the, the, the nasal passages filter out. But even beyond filtering out, which is, of course, very important, they're sensing. There are, you know, that's the first place where your body's going to interact with your environment and organisms and bacteria and other microbes, et cetera, as well as uh, olfactory challenges and sensations that are affecting your behavior, uh, which you bypass with mouth breathing. So how do we get away from mouth breathing? What, what should we be thinking about? So there are a variety of d- different techniques, which we list in the book, you know, everything from, from box breathing to the four, seven, eight breath to my personal favorite, the inhale for two and then exhale for four. But, you know, in an effort to keep it simple, it's really try to be conscious of how you're breathing during the day. When you're not talking, keep your mouth closed. It, it, it's kind of that simple. It's, it, it, it's difficult, but really try to focus on breathing through your nose as much there are as gonna be a lot of people offended by that comment oh here's a health tip when you're not talking close your mouth <laughs> think about all the effective conversations we could have and heated debates if that were the case yeah so that segues beautifully to sleep and the word you use with respect to sleep in your book was crisis that and i agree with you but uh let's unpack that a little bit who wants to respond I mean, sleep, sleep's deeply personal for me, so I'll, I'll take this one. I uh, struggled in my 20s with some work anxiety in front of speaking in front of a large group of executives where I literally couldn't fall asleep for three nights in a row. Ended up in the hospital where a doctor gave me a Xanax, which did help me fall asleep that night, but you know, definitely did not set me up for the right sleep etiquette and habits to, to have a better relationship with my sleep. Clearly, I'm not alone. There's 33% of Americans don't get enough sleep. 50 to 70 million U.S. adults have some sort of sleep disorder. The most common one is insomnia. And I know that I'm on a lifelong journey with sleep. And, you know, 
some of the uh, most poignant advice is, you know, the advice that definitely infuriates people like me who struggle with sleep where they're like, you just got to chill out, but it is an important part of it. Your body does know how to sleep. And so how do we help train it and how do we help get it back there? And it really starts, you know, early in the day in terms of getting sunlight so you can help um, set the right circadian rhythms, having a really attuned understanding of what your caffeine curfew should be. Anytime I see one, you know, it, it varies from like 12 to two. If you are a truly sensitive um, metabolizer to caffeine like I am, I couldn't have a coffee at this hour, whereas I know Jason could probably pound some espressos and be perfectly fine. But it's yet another way in which you really have to understand the way in which your body works and develop the right um, intricacies and nuances. It's understanding your stressors and your triggers. And, you know, for me, that means having devices like an aura ring is actually stressful. Um, when I have a bad night's sleep, I don't need that reinforcement of it. Um, and there's studies that show that if you are someone with sleep anxiety and you have an alarm clock in your room, it can further exacerbate your sleep anxiety because you are reminded of, you know, this obstacle that you are really struggling with. Um, but when it comes to, you know, still finding the joy in life, I think one of the things that's also important to acknowledge is We've read all of the information around sleep, but we still need to find ways to bring joy into our life. So we will watch TV at night, even though that quote unquote breaks all the sleep rules and that we're watching TV in bed. What are you but watching? I know we just watched the session on Sunday night, which we highly oh, recommend. Oh, I heard, don't, I don't, spoiler alert. I don't, I have never watched it, but I, I know there's a big change that happened because we're, anyway, we're in we're season in for two. for a treat. Huh? Okay. It's quite good. We're in season two of Ted Lasso. <laughs> right now so uh oh, oh. we're there too we're a little behind so yeah, don't yeah. Enjoy. working through it so no spoilers here but anyway so go ahead so tv but, at night is a treat for some but it's certainly on, it. on the and avoid it, list of uh you know things to get a good night's sleep no question totally totally and you know we've d done kind of the internal math of what wait this this brings me a lot of joy there's things that are going to have a bigger impact like me checking work email before bedtime than this so you know, I think it goes back to that conversation around being the CEO and understanding what your body needs um, to thrive and survive. And, you know, sleep is so important. You could go a week without exercising. You could, you know, go off your diet for a week. But if you don't sleep for a week, you're not going to be okay. That's for sure. You know, I think that you bring up an interesting point about sleep. And, and as I hear your story, uh, about some of the anxieties related to uh, you're going to be giving a, a presentation three days hence and uh, beginning those days prior to you start having, you know, concern, anxiety related to your performance. So it, you know, to me, when I hear stories like that, it sort of presents an opportunity to dig a little deeper into the uh, origins of that anxiety and measuring up and uh, performing in a way that would be looked upon as being positive by when we were children, maybe perhaps from our parents, et cetera. So, you know, people say, well, just get over it. You need to chill, the word you use, you need to chill out, but you can't just chill out or, or take a chill pill. You know, you really need to understand where that anxiety is coming from because it'll be developed, not just because you have to speak in public, but from those work-related emails that, that are tasks unfinished, you're not going to get a good grade because of that. And we all go through that. But I think once we can contextualize the origin of those anxieties, I think it, you know, all the other stuff about watching Ted Lasso at night or maybe you didn't get enough sunlight in the morning are less relevant because I think those personal experience uh, and dealing with patients, those are the big issues that keep people up at night. It's the, the things that push our, our longstanding buttons from earlier times in our lives that really come back and, and don't let us unwind, don't let us give up and, and let, uh, let Hyp Hypnos, the God of Hypnos, come and take us away. So uh, you mentioned something I think really important, and that is what a relationship between what we choose to do in our daytime uh, and how that affects uh, nighttime. What's beyond just getting some light in the morning? So I, I have a couple of things. I know you have a couple of things. Uh, you know, so I, good I think thing we have four hours. It is really. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it it really is. You know, I think this idea that sleep just doesn't happen when you're ready to go to sleep. 
sleep is a tw it's 24 7 so it doesn't start at 7 30 or an hour before it really does start in the morning and it does start with sunlight it does start with caffeine consumption i can drink caffeine late into the day and be fine colleen can't a lot of other people can't that's a personal call you got to figure that out size of meal meal timing uh general rule of thumb is don't have a gigantic meal less than three hours before bed. You probably even, if you're going to have a really heavy meal, you probably want to go much earlier in the day. Uh, alcohol consumption, you probably want to go earlier in the day. I, you know, I, that's, that's some people will say no alcohol at all. If, if you do enjoy alcohol and, and you can do so, it's probably better earlier than later because that will definitely affect your sleep. And then, you know, obviously sugar, the sweets, the carbs, all the fun stuff, you know, that that's going to affect your sleep if you go heavy with that late in the day too. So it really does start, diet does play a role. Also exercise, you're probably not going to want to do a really heavy workout at night. Some people have, you will tire yourself out, but some people have trouble coming down from that. You probably want to go earlier. Uh, other practices we swear by, temperature is a huge one for us. Uh, we make sure, you know, some people will say 65 degrees, we'll, we'll go like 68, 69. We also have the eight sleep mattress and I go so cold. <laughs> I like freeze and then I have to get warm. I may be taking a little bit too far, but like we're, it's one of the cooling mattresses we love. That's a big one. And then when we do turn off the TV after we enjoy our, our Netflix binging, we really try to make sure that the room is dark. Those are kind of the the, the big ones for us. Did you I cover miss, them. I miss anything? Well, let me go back to the aura ring and the whole notion of biometrics uh, in general. And uh, Colleen, I think your point is really well taken that there can be some uh, neuroses developed around those devices. And you know, my my personal view is I find it very informative when I try to correlate the results based upon what I did the day before. And in that regard, I find it's a very, very helpful learning tool. So I do use it, uh, not all the time. I mean, if, if there's nothing different about my lifestyle choices, I won't use it. But if I'm um, eight late, like uh, uh, Jason just described, or had two glasses of wine, which would be unusual for me, or uh, had a more intense exercise maybe later in the day, or had iced tea or something later in the day, uh, then I kind of want to know. And it, it's very informative, you know, because it, it helps me modify my behaviors moving forward. Yeah. But I totally get that people can get totally wrapped up in this. There was a great um, review appearing in the Journal of the American Medical Association when uh, we were asked, should everyone have access to a continuous glucose monitor? Many of us feel that the answer is definitely yes. But JAMA said, no, too many people are going to get neurotic about it. And you know, my, at first pass, I thought, gosh, they're missing out on an amazing opportunity to learn about a person's metabolic health. But I get the second part of that argument. I really do. because. Uh, and, you know. and I think for both yeah. the Aura Ring and my experiment with, with a CGM, the insights in that first two weeks are so compelling. I love margaritas. <laughs> I learned from my aura ring and I probably needed that data to be able to make the life change that if I'm going to have a drink and I don't drink a lot, that it's probably better at lunch. And I thought the insights in, in my CGM were super fascinating in the two weeks, but otherwise I, it added more anxiety and, and kept me from enjoying the pizza with the girls. And I think that the bigger point is <laughs> you do need to be the CEO here. And if you understand that you're prone to neuroses with the wearables and you should probably avoid them. And the flip flip side with the CGM, like we both did them for a couple of weeks. The insights were extraordinary. And then we kind of understood understood them and we moved on. The big watch out there, if you're prone to an eating disorder, stay far away. Uh, I think that's great advice. I think it's really terrific. And, and, you know, the point is well taken that, you know, again, with the JAMA article that it's not for everybody. And if, there is somebody like that, and you need the data as a healthcare practitioner. By all means, get the data for the, as you say, calling for the two weeks, and then then take it from there. Take the device off, and then modify the plan. And and the CGM was a huge win for me because I can have chocolate and peanut butter all day long, and I was you know <laughs> minimal on my exactly. So I, I'm golden there. <laughs> you you uh, you talk in the book about what's called a what you call I've never heard the term before a health 
pile up. So what, tell me what that, tell us what that means. And then we'll talk about the, uh, what the opposite of that is. You know, I, I think in, there are various phrases we've heard for this. We like the health pile up. Sometimes we've heard people say, you know, I got a case of the 40s or a case of the 50s, whatever it is. And I think it's this idea that there are a lot of people out there who, you know, do do the right things. You know, they, they are they are working out, they are eating well, and then maybe an injury happens or being a parent happens or work demands change. And then they kind of lose their rhythm and then maybe they gain a couple pounds and then maybe they can't go to the gym. Maybe there's, uh, you know, a health event that takes a little long to recover from. And then all of a sudden this person looks back and says, what happened to me? You know, I was a healthy person and here I am, I look in the mirror or I look at my lab results because it's not, sometimes not about the mirror and I am just a far cry from what I used to be. And it can happen very easily to, to anyone, even with the best intentions. And so that, that happens way too frequently. If you look at the numbers of how many people are metabolically unhealthy, I think we're from 88% to 90, we're north of 90 now. That have like, at least one parameter, uh, one of the markers of yeah. metabolic syndrome, yes. Which means and that it, only it, it, less than 10% of American adults is metabolically yeah. intact pretty scary proposition because that's not genetic that is induced by environment no. by choices and I, you know I, I will say that th these things are going to happen um, you know they're going to be things that set us back and you know I've often um, entered the debate as in terms of which is better aerobic or uh, weight training or resistance exercise in fact you cover, talk about this in your book and I I always say, well, it's a three-legged stool because the thing that people tend to forget is the flexibility work. And why is that important? In and of itself, it's important. But if you do the flexibility training every day, you don't get injured. If you So you don't set yourself up for this, you know, what you call this health pileup. Because if you get injured, you're not working out, you're not going to the gym, you gain the weight, you become discouraged, blood sugar goes up. And, you know, to some people, that's enough to say, well, why am I doing this, you know? And then they, they get out of the game. So the the uh, alternative that you offer up is called the well-being wave. Or I don't know if you invented that term, but I don't think I've heard it before. And, you know, I, I think doesn't that work sort of in the same way that you, you pile these things on and they're cumulative? Absolutely. Momentum begets more momentum. And I think when anyone starts to see one area of their life improve, they get inspired. They're, they get that immediate kind of gratification, and it's easier to start modifying other behaviors when there's a little bit of momentum. And, you know, when we think of these areas of the fundamentals, it's like you want to start in the area that's going to give you the biggest impact on your life, because that's going to just create more momentum and more wins. And, and again, this is the major objection to, to health and well-being. I don't have the time and resources because I look at all the things I have to do and it's just not a reality. And us as two people who are embedded in this space and passionate, it's your life's work. And we look at some of these these new modalities and we say, there's no way we can fit this into our schedule. Not possible. And it's our job. And it's our job. Yeah, I remember when uh, I interviewed Wim Hof and he's saying, yes, you know, you've got to basically cut a hole in the ice and jump in. I'm thinking yes. I'm in Naples, Florida, you know, not exactly going to work uh, with my lifestyle. You, um, interestingly, there's a part and I, and maybe it seems like I'm, I'm dashing around a little bit, but things caught my attention. Uh, treat, not cheat. I love that. I mean, if you're yes. gonna, right. Talk, talk us through that. You know, there, there's so much yeah, perspective is everything. And you know, I, I think in our world, sometimes there's maybe a belief that, you know, we're not doing enough or we're not good enough or any deviation from whatever the protocol or the program is, uh, is something that could potentially cause someone to feel guilty. It's just terrible. We just do not believe in that. In a word. <laughs> and... You know, so, you know, if you are the word joy, I think, has been kind of sucked out of the conversation. And and, and it was a big part of you know, the, the book in the last two chapters, like meaningful, joyful relationships and purpose are just are everything. And, you know, life is about 
you know, enjoying maybe a glass of wine with, with your, with your partner or, or breaking bread there. I say with Dr. Perlmutter <laughs> with loved ones over celebrating a family meal uh, or having a, a slice of cake every once in a, or whatever it may, might look like, whatever you consider deviating from whatever protocol you're on. And it's this idea that you're not a lesser person for doing so and that you should enjoy this, mo this moment. And whatever it is, make sure it's absolutely amazing. If you're, if you're gonna, if you don't really drink and you're gonna have a glass of wine, make sure it's a great glass of wine and feel great about it. Yeah. Don't have a crappy glass of wine and say, oh no, I had the glass of wine, I feel terrible and you end up having six, whatever it might be. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Enjoy it, just don't do it all the time. If you're gonna yeah. have a- so It's know, a treat it, and you shouldn't consider that exactly. you're cheating. You know, cheating has all this guys. You're breaking the rules. What's wrong with you? I'll never forget. Uh, I went to years and years ago. Uh, there was a lecture by a guy by the name of Deepak Chopra. This was this was way back. Oh sure. And I, I was at, at the Unity Church, and my wife. Do I? Did you hear me say drag me along? Maybe she did because I, you know, back in those days. Anyway, I'm grateful. Believe me. And he said, uh, you know, if you are a cigarette smoker. I'm going to tell you right now, right now, don't stop. But all I'm telling you to do or asking you to do is next time you're going to smoke a cigarette, bring your cigarette and the lighter, go outside on the front porch, light that cigarette and engage with it and be present with it. And dare I say, enjoy it. And I think that what he was getting at is, you know, the, the mindlessness of cigarette smoking for some people, for example, on the phone, typing, doing whatever they're doing. And that if you're going to do, as you well say, if it's going to be a glass of wine, enjoy it. Get a nice bottle of Barola, whatever you like, and enjoy that moment. So there's a, that one little language, uh, treat, not cheat, I think is really important. I, I, I hung on those words for quite some time. Very well done. Thank who you. Came, who came up with that, by the way? Everything is a collaboration. <laughs> oh, good. Well, uh, <laughs> In the spirit of, uh, you know, your quest for joy in life, uh, you moved out of New York City. Uh, how did that all unfold and how is it going now? Oh, wow. That's a big one. Uh, it's you know, our big last closing question because... Uh, it's a big, you, you yeah. Know. How deep do you want to go? Uh, uh, well, uh, we don't know, you know so, what, what really happened, I guess, but so, I think overall, yeah. what was the, what motivated you? So definitely motivated by our children and also our love for Miami. So Colleen and I actually have a lot of history in Miami in that, you know, our third date was in Miami at Art Basel in 2007. We got engaged in Miami in 2008. We went on our mini moon because we couldn't afford a real honeymoon at the time in 2009 in Miami. And we've never liked the cold. We would come here a couple times a year uh, in the winter and it became, you know, our happy place. We, we've always loved the culture here. We've loved the art. We love the community, the beach. Uh, and there's just, it's always been kind of the place we would go to. And, you know, with our oldest daughter entering kindergarten, um, you know, we've been in Brooklyn for, for 13 years. We've loved it there. It was such a great place. But, you know, kindergarten, it, it starts to get real in New York City in terms of the schools and everything you've read it's worse. And, oh, you know, value wise, you know, we wanted our kids to be outside playing sports uh, and, and in an environment where they also had culture and were exposed to diversity. And Miami checked a lot of boxes for us. And we found a school here that we, we loved and uh, both of our girls were, were accepted and and that was it. And as we think of, you know, the values that we have as a family, Miami's been a wonderful canvas for all of them to unfold. We obviously talk a lot about joy. We grew up playing sports. It's been really nice at, you know, now in our 40s to take on a new sport, pickleball, which we were talking about earlier. We talk about the importance in the book of, of nature and having a transcendent relationship with nature can be spiritual. And I feel that so closely with the water and being near water, not just from a soothing standpoint, but also just from a, you know, connection to, to something bigger. 
And last, I we talk a ton about the importance of connections and community and how that's you know, vital for health and well-being and probably the most important drug you could take um, in terms of impact. And when you are in a new city, there is an openness that you have to making connections and community that, you know, after 13 years, I was probably not as open and friendly and kind of open to these connections as I could have been. So I found it, you know, very inspiring on so many personal levels, as well as being a nice option for my kids. And on a spiritual level, things just kind of started to click here very quickly. You know, a lot of our people, you know, were here. Andrew from your team. Oh, I realized he moved to Miami. Mm. And then Dan Butner and Mark Sisson and Todd White and just and the countless other people we've since met. My high school is probably uh, a mile from your home, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. And you went to see Santana at the park across from where we, I think you saw Santana, you told me. That's right. The park. <laughs> Some of the things about those years might ne not necessarily make their way to the podcast as it were. Uh, but uh, I mean, we're talking about the uh, late sixties, early seventies in coconut Grove. It was, it was something to behold in the day, but you know, great experiences. Anyway, you guys are the best and um, great success with this book and you deserve it. It's so very, very well written and it's not, um, you're not speaking down to anybody. I mean, you're speaking to the reader in a way that you've, you, you could say you've thought this through, you've had your own experiences and we're all in this together. And gee whiz, that's, I think the final message of the whole book is this notion of coming together and reconnecting to every, as we just talked about, reconnecting to your communities, uh, to your planet. And I think, you know, importantly, reconnecting to yourself, begin that with even just paying attention to your breathing and then everything else seems to fall into place. So congratulations. And I'm sure uh, grateful to have had some time with you guys today. Well, thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your show. And we look forward to seeing you in the Grove very soon. You bet the Grove. Now that you're calling it the Grove, I know you've been there. That's terrific. <laughs> All right, everybody. Bye for now. Take care. Take care. This was really enjoyable for me and hopefully for you as well. Um, these are important tips, you know, and I think uh, the the notion of getting it 80% right and treating yourself uh, to treats at times uh, and uh, as opposed to being obsessed with, you know, our lifestyles and being orthorexic about what we're consuming. Uh, very, very good points. Connection, sleep, exercise, movement in general, the threat of sedentarity, uh, various uh, issues that we can control have such a huge impact, not only on our level of, of health, but more broadly, the sense of well-being that includes our emotional health and our, our sense of purpose. So uh, thank you to uh, uh, Colleen and Jason for joining us today and joining me as well. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter here for The Empower Neurologist, and we will be back soon. Bye for now.